Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Does time exist? What is time? These are some big questions that may not feel like they need to be questions, but they're important questions because the topic, as my guest says, is a little prickly. My guest today is Michael Granado, who is currently completing his PhD in philosophy at Staffordshire University. His research focuses on Gaston Bachelard. Oh my gosh, I asked a million times how to pronounce it, I keep getting it wrong. On Gaston Bachelard's philosophy of time. Um, Bachelard presents a, a relational theory of time that attempts to reconcile the developments of relativity theory um, with our uh, psychological experience that, um, of turning of time using analogies drawn from quantum mechanics. Oh my gosh, I apologize for that intro, but welcome guest Michael Granado. Thank you for coming on, Michael. My gosh. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Oh my God. I, I have to preface this by saying I haven't had much sleep. We've got a newborn and last night I only got a few hours sleep and sometimes my brain just reboots like that. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was, it's all good. You you oh have a built-in fantastic excuse. You you have no one to apologize to. It's all right. Oh my gosh. Anyway, um thank you so much for coming on. So this topic um is is uh is an interesting one. One because a lot of people don't realize that it is interesting because people just think time's time. And then another thing is because um, it's uh, it's it's one of those things that is incredibly complex and it's going to be a fun game to try and keep it as entertaining as possible. Um, I said to Michael, we want to be somewhere between Joe Rogan experience and a scientific lecture. So like somewhere in the middle of that. So um, before we... Uh... <laughs> Sorry, someone said Michael Granado is getting his PhD in Akarat. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Oh my gosh. Sorry, everyone. I I'm not very good at that. Um, I'll post the the actual name in the chat so everyone can see. Yeah. Uh, so Michael, what are we drinking today? First of all. Mm. Yeah. So um, I figured we'd uh, spice it up a little bit. This was when you were doing your uh, sober January, I think it was. Yeah. Um, we're drinking a tea. Yoruba Mate. Um, I came across this because I'm I have a really nasty caffeine. Uh, I mean, it's an addict. It's a full blown addiction. But uh, <laughs> I, I've been trying to um, to not drink five pots of coffee a day, and so I switched to tea, especially uh, not as tea that's not as caffeinated. And uh, Yoruba Mate is kind of a uh, it the I think the closest thing to it is like a green tea. Oh, okay. Um, still got caffeine in it, by the way. It's just not, uh, you know, it's not the espresso shots I'm doing. So. Oh, awesome. Um, okay, cool. Well, I've never had it before. And when you when you sent it to me, I thought you were joking because I thought you misspelled something because as an Australian, I read it as Yerba Mate. And I was like, <laughs> Yerba Mate. I thought you were saying like, you want to do herbal tea, mate. Like I thought you were, that's what you were saying. So anyway. <laughs> So, <laughs> first question. Let's jump straight into it. Um, yeah. Does time exist? Right. Um, oh yeah, we'll just start off with that. Um, okay. So, as David and I were talking about this before, um, philosophy of time is one of those areas of philosophy that is. Uh, let me say some negative characteristics first. 
uh, overly pretentious comes to mind. <laughs> um, it it can be very very academic and dense, uh, oftentimes unnecessarily so. Um, and I say all that to say that um, there, there's this there's this phrase that the Buddha uses in uh, one of the dialogues where he's talking about trying to achieve enlightenment. And he says that it's like trying to tie the air into knots. It's like a fruitless, oh, useless that's, that's exercise. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's a lot of, a lot of academic philosophy. And I especially feel that that's the case with the philosophy of time. So I'm going to throw around some philosophical jargon. Um, I'm going to try to keep it as, as jargon free as possible, but, let me actually answer your question. <laughs> uh, and just, and yeah, go ahead. another thing, another thing, just to mention, um, you wanted to make me, you wanted it, you wanted me. My, why is my brain? Am I having a stroke? Why <laughs> you wanted me uh, to make it known that you're definitely not a physicist? However, right. your this is your PhD thesis, right? You're like, mm -hmm. well, the arguments around this is your PhD thesis. So you right. may not. You may not um, be, you know, behind a telescope or under a microscope, like studying this stuff. But I don't even know. Say you don't study that stuff like that. But you are, you are an expert in the arguments around this. So yes, uh, yeah. thank you for that. So um, let me talk a little bit about what I study and then answer your question. If that if cool. this, yeah, this yeah, might yeah. actually be somewhat helpful. Um, because sometimes when people, when I tell people what I study, they invite me on and then they ask me a bunch of questions about physics, which, uh, I'm, I barely passed high school algebra. Okay. Maths is, uh, <laughs> is not my thing. Um, but I, I study philosophy, uh, a branch of philosophy called philosophy of, so we're going to start big and then go narrow and narrow and narrow. Um, I study philosophy, but most of my background's actually in history the history of science. So uh, I have two master's degrees. Uh, one is in um, the history of early modern uh, science, basically Isaac Newton, Samuel Clark, uh, Leibniz, a German philosopher, and this debate that they had. Um, then my second master's in history was in uh, the reception of Darwinism in the United States. So most of my academic backgrounds in history well, what am I doing with a PhD in philosophy? The history of science kind of combines, uh, merges with the philosophy of science, um, especially in the French tradition. The French have this long tradition of what they call historic epistemology, which is contextualizing uh, knowledge. And for early 20th century French philosophers, contextualizing knowledge meant putting it within its proper historic context, even forms of knowledge like science. And that's where that's kind of what I'm doing. So I'm studying philosophy, but I'm looking at philosophical issues from the early 20th century. So it's it has more of a historic bent to it. So I'm going to be tossing a lot around a lot of philosophic and scientific jargon. Um, but my academic background's not in science. It's 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 firmly in in history, history of science, and in the in a very small area of the philosophy of science, if that makes sense. Awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess I can attempt to answer the first question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So does time exist? <laughs> does time exist? So 
there are uh, two big two big schools of thought here with respect to time uh, that relate to this question: Does time exist? Um, which we'll I'll, I'll dig into a little bit more. But let me just start off by saying um, time, as defined by relativity theory um, and by some aspects of quantum mechanics. Um, Einstein famously said that time is just what clocks measure. So does okay. time exist? Um, well, not to sound like a pedantic philosopher, but it depends on what you mean by exist. So time would be in that respect, a uh, kind of like a second order phenomenon in the same way that money exists, right? So money exists, but it's a social construct in the sense mm -hmm. that uh, the value that we as human beings place on money causes it to exist socially. We all use it and agree that it has like a social function. But if you were to take away humanity, would money exist? No, right? Because mm -hmm. money is something that humans use. Um, early 20th century physics will say something very, very similar about time, um, that time is what clocks measure to put it in einstein's words is a is a very functional account of what time is and so if you take away clocks i.e if you take away humans is there time um at first glance no if we're just talking about uh, the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity time is very uh functional in that regard meaning it's a, it's a function of measurement now that changes in later 20th century physics with the introduction of, of in quantum mechanics of fields and of the space-time manifold. Um, so I would say that it, it it just depends on what you mean by exist. We can start there, yeah. Okay, um, I, I just wanna say, I do see everyone's comments. Um, I'm just going to, we will get we'll get around to answering them and engaging in a sec. It's just that um, we've, got to, we've got to kind of set the foundation um uh, you know in less time than an hour or so <laughs> before uh before we can um you know we've got to set the foundation first so so i i, I remember the reason the reason i kind of asked you that question is because mm -hmm. i i was um, scratching my brain last night writing down some notes on on what i could ask you about this and i remember having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine lauren um and lauren and i used to we actually deconstructed our faith together kind of like over um facebook mm -hmm. messenger just like talking a lot about it and um and she mentioned we you, we talk about science a lot and it's been a while since i've talked about science but i i actually just we would throw kind of stoner points out to each other every now and again like what if life is this and what if not that i'm a stoner or not not, not that, but i uh and i remember just i paraphrase i found the comment i paraphrased what i essentially said which was um, time is a construct that we as a society have invented to account for the decay rate of atoms, the changing of seasons, and the rotation of Earth around the sun. The concept of time is an arbitrary tool and only exists um, if our, uh, and the only, and the, uh, sorry, the concept of time is an arbitrary tool and only exists um, in our subconscious experience. So it's almost like um, time is like an inch, right? Like you can determine what an inch is, but you know, an, an inch or a foot or a mile only exists in so much as it's an arbitrary length that we have determined that will, is a tool. But but like pointing somewhere in, pointing somewhere to the in 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 um in the material universe to show us what we we can describe an inch, but we can't point to somewhere in the universe and say 
the universe says that this is an inch. We've we've arbitrarily chosen parts of the universe to say this is what represents an inch. But yeah. But what's interesting about the concept around time is, and this might be the same case with an inch, to put it into perspective of an inch, an inch may be different depending on how you're, where you are in the universe. So an inch might actually change. Not really, not inches, but time will actually change, right? So like mm -hmm. we're going to go into a little bit of like the twin paradox and um, and uh, relativity and things like that, but but time can actually be different for two different people in very real and practical ways that have, I guess, I'll ask you about this later, but have actually been shown to, well, not shown, but have actually happened. So, right. yeah, that's where we started. No, that's good. I mean, it's good that you phrase it like that because asking... Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good friend of mine <laughs> oh man that's good so someone for those listening someone said uh there are only four important inches in my life so uh, okay <laughs> sorry oh i could just uh see one of my high schoolers watching this video <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um i like how you i like the the nature of the question because it gets to one of the fundamental distinctions in the philosophy of time. Um, and this is what makes philosophy of time interesting intellectually and also what makes it practical for a lot of people. Um, most people have a, a general idea of what time is. Like you could go to an elementary school or, you know, to a group of, I forget that you're, not American, a group of like four to eight year olds and ask them, hey, what do you think time is? And they would be able to articulate and describe some aspects and features of what time is. Um, and this is what makes the problem of time in philosophy incredibly difficult is philosophers call this, uh, one of the phrases that they use is called manifest time. And manifest time is how time appears to us. So strictly from a, a phenomenological or how we experience it, um, time has certain qualities to it. So common phrases that people toss around is that uh, time moves, time flows. Wow, that time, time really went by. Or I can't believe it's February already. It seemed like the year just started. Like there are all of these um, basic everyday kind of phrases that we throw around these like, uh, what are they called? Um, idioms that we use on a regular basis that, that have these common characteristics that time has a, a flow or a movement or a pace to it. And this also seems to be reflected just in basic observations about our life, right? We were born, we had a childhood, we went into young adult, and we make sense of our lives via some sort of temporal narrative, right? We tell stories about ourselves and about who we are as people. And that narrative assumes that, this sounds silly, but we got to start silly when we're talking with philosophy, that the past was real, that the mm. past existed, that I was there, and that I, I have transitioned through that past to the present. And so I'm I'm telling this, yeah. building this story, right? 
because because there's a there's an argument um like with hard solipsism that like essentially we don't know that we were just created at right this second and all our memories are part of were implanted into us right at this second right yeah 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 we'll, so we we'll, got to we got to kind of go like let's pretend we didn't hear that and let's move like so we can at least investigate <laughs> the argument yeah yeah right. yeah uh global skepticism is a is an almost impossible philosophical position to you know yeah. it's it's fun to talk about but um you know you got to get on with day-to-day -day life eventually um yeah. but so that's that's what manifest time is now here's the kicker um the description of manifest time that we have a past that I've been growing older, that I have the story that I tell myself about myself and about my past. That is according to science, um, fundamentally wrong from the perspective of physics. So this is why time is a issue and why it's a philosophical problem because our, perception of what time is, is inherently at odds with the scientific descriptions that we have of time. So what are we supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to make sense of that? And this creates a, this creates a domino effect, right? Because if I can be that wrong about time, this is where the global skepticism comes in, right? Because it, it is one of the most certain things to me that I had a childhood that X, Y, and Z event happened and that I am here where I am today. Like if I have fundamental reason to doubt that, that's a pretty confident core belief. What else, like what else goes out the window with it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So this is why this question is epistemologically when it comes to knowledge, this is why it's so fundamental, why it's so important. I have a random question. Um, uh, I heard a theory that met metabolic rate can change your perception of time. Is that true? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, so I'll talk about this uh, a little later, but um, some more distinctions that we can draw is between uh, physical time, um, experienced time and, or psychological time and biological time. And what, the field of psychology has showed us over like the past 50 years or so is that the ex your personal experience of time is highly subjective and malleable so i don't know if specifically uh your metabolic rate can change your perception of time but there's a whole host of things that can change your perception of time hmm. um your, that... your whether or not you're experiencing pleasure at that moment can change your perception of time um yeah all sorts of stuff I... I don't know if this was just a meme or if it was actually something that Einstein said, but it was like Einstein was asked about the theory of relativity and he said like, mm -hmm. something like, you know, um, compare yourself talking to a beautiful lady versus putting your hand on a hot plate and that's relativity. Yeah. Um, like the time goes very, moves very differently. Is that actually something that he said or is that just a meme? Oh, that kind of <laughs> so I've heard that before. Not only have I heard it before, I've read it in books before, but I have not been able to track down that quote. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's about 50-50. He said something similar, uh, but it it wasn't quite phrased that way. But how how annoying is it when you cause just a random, random aside again, you know the um phrase that everyone gets wrong, um, the love of money is the root of all evil. 
that mm-hmm. it, that everyone thinks it's money is the root of all evil, but it's not. Right. Um, and everyone attributes it to Jesus. I was reading some like <laughs> older, older, older philosophy, way older than Jesus, and I, I forgot who it was, but it was like they said the love of money is the root of all evil before Jesus. So I was like, wow. I was like, so did Jesus know about this? Is this like a fundamental truth that Jesus just got as well? Or did he know about these philosophers? And I haven't been able to find an answer to that online. Anyway, I digress. Continue. No, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, history of science. It's not nearly as bad as the history of religion. Um, <laughs> oh, there yeah. are, well, it's not bad in the sense that in the history of religion, there are so many like misconceptions about it. That's what I meant. Not yeah. to downplay the history yeah, yeah. of religion, uh, <laughs> but there are so many mis like so many misquotes to Einstein and, and, and Darwin and Newton. They're just like all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so why does this create a problem in philosophy? Yes. So, there is a long tradition in philosophy um, dealing with questions of epistemology. So in, in philosophy, epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? What, what can we found the confidence of our beliefs in? What makes a, a justified true belief to use good philosophical language, right? Um, and there's a there's a long tradition in philosophy that the most one of the most secure foundational ways to establish true belief is uh, what philosophers would call intuition, or what most people would call like common sense, right? So think you know if if a if a you know an ab- obtuse philosopher would were to ask you like prove to me I'm holding a pen right now. How would you go about proving that? Well, most people would say, well, here's your, here's your pen. Here's my hand. Mm. Here's the pen. I'm holding it. Right? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that works. Like that's, that's how we learn about the world. Like that's our most mm. basic, uh, that's our like first form of knowledge. We want to know something. We want to figure something out. So we use our sense perceptions to, to deduce that thing or to figure out that that thing's there. Uh, and object permanence is one of the first types of knowledge that children have, right? How do I know that my mother's there because there, there she is, right? I'm, mm. I'm the baby. There's, there's my mom, and I know that my mom feeds me. So when my mom walks over, I know that I'm about to get food, right? That is like, that is like one of the most foundational types of knowing, ways of knowing. Um, and this goes back in the French tradition, especially to philosophers like Rene Descartes in the 17th century, who argued that true foundational knowledge is found in what he called clear and distinct ideas, ideas that uh, appear clearly and distinctly to our mind's eye, uh, and was followed up in the 19th and 20th century by other French philosophers like Henry Bergson. And when Bergson looked at a subject like time and said, okay, what do we know about time? What Bergson appealed to was our intuition of time, our common sense, that manifest image of what time is and said, okay, we know that time has certain characteristics like it's it's extended in duration, that we experience lapse of time. How do we know that we experience lapse of time? You literally experience lapse of time every day. So 
that's why this this question is so important and why it's a philosophical problem because intuition and common sense has played such a foundational role in epistemology since the beginning of philosophy and even you know think about like talking to somebody on the street and asking them how they know something right that basic intuition or that basic sense of common sense is probably going to be the first thing they appeal to hmm yeah it's um yeah so it's almost something that i something that i pick up on um in in my journey of life is that often our subjective experiences um misleads us into the reality of things an example i've used recently is like let's say when you're a child you get bit on the bitten on the face by like a chihuahua and you you're now scared of chihuahuas right you're scared of these like little mm-hmm. dogs um well you might you know and then so i asked you how many chihuahua deaths are there per year you might estimate more than zero right um which would be an incorrect well, actually, I don't know. There could be Chihuahua deaths, but let's just say there isn't. <laughs> okay. the, the point is, is like your subjective experience can skew your results. And it's the same, that, that, that's where, um, you know, that's that's where things like racism come in. That's where like the news um, organizations uh, like pro, uh, work off our subjective fears and irrationalities. Um, and I, I often find that uh, my favorite quote to say, um, and my wife has grown to love it as well, is feelings aren't facts. And, mm. uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm, if I'm having an anxiety attack and I feel like the world's falling apart, yeah. the world isn't falling apart. Usually, usually the anxiety attack is unjustified. Right. Most fear is irrational, you know? So, so sometimes I feel subjective, subjectiveness actually skews us from perceiving the real world. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess maybe, um, so maybe we should go over the theories of time. So there's uh, substantive yeah. versus relational. Yes. So let me make a quick comment about what you just said, um, mm-hmm. and then I'll and I'll talk about this distinction because the the philosopher that I study his name's Gaston Bachelard, um, and by the way, don't I, I mispronounce? So I study French philosophy, <laughs> which means that Did you say Bachelard or Bacacocac. i i mispronounce it all the time and speaking about how pretentious philosophers are like when i present at a philosophy conference and i'm sitting in a room of french philosophers and i say bachelard like i could just see the the eyes rolling in the back of the head they're like who's this dumb american talking about our philosophy right uh so don't yeah i i do it all the time you just look at the comments on my video. People are correcting me constantly. <laughs> um, so this is one of the fundamental distinctions, fundamental philosophical distinctions between uh, Bachelard and his main uh, interlocutor, the person that he's arguing with, Henry Bergson. So Bergson's argument is that knowledge is founded and comes from intuition, that knowledge is founded and comes from common sense. And so when Bergson talks about time, he's talking, he'll, he'll say that the fundamental characteristic of time is duration, that time is, is, is measuring a, a set length, right? And that's its most basic feature. Um, Moshlar disagrees with that, which sounds kind of like, how could you disagree with that? Like, that's just <laughs> seems kind of like basic, right? Because of intuition. Um, but Bachelard argues that and, and Bachelard is, writes a lot about uh, scientific epistemology, how science comes to know and understand the truth. And Bachelard says that science actually comes to truth 
via opposing intuition and via getting over and combating the certain biases that we have about the world. And our most basic fundamental bias is that reality is as it appears to me. Hmm. That okay. if I want to know the truth, I just look at it, there it is. And that's reality. But Boschler says, well, on a superficial level, yes, like observation is a critical component to science. But oftentimes in science, things aren't quite as they appear to be, right? Just look at, you know, going, Boschler writes a lot about like early chemistry. Just look at early chemistry and early biology. One of the fundamental breakthroughs is the realization that the surface level appearance of the world is just that surface level, that there's all these like microorganisms and stuff at the bottom of everything that we had no clue existed. And that scientific epistemology, that scientific knowledge builds itself up by combating those biases and by going against those biases. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate what, what you just said there. Um, yeah, well, uh, Bakakarat looks like this for anyone that Bachelard yeah looks yeah, like yeah. this this is this is what he looks like and the man looks wise <laughs> let me just say that um someone someone has a question uh, aaron has a question uh, great to see you here aaron um is the recognition of time or creation of time an evolutionary phenomenon example if somewhere else in the universe there are beings with equal or greater intelligence than us do they have time and that <laughs> A spin-off uh, question, which is in the same vein, um, which is from Lauren, who I talked to last night, um, mm. compiling some notes for this, is um, do other species have different biological systems of perceived time? So I've always I've always wondered, like, this will sound strange, but does a fly feel like it's been alive for two days or does it feel like it's been alive for much longer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um... This goes back, um, let me start off by saying that uh, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> that that's actually a that would actually be like a testable psychological experiment. Um, yeah, like you could actually you could actually work that out. Um, I will say that I, I will say this. So yeah, please take what I say here with a with a hefty grain of salt because again, not a scientist. Um, <laughs> I will say that, human beings depending upon uh geographical location have different experiences of time so in uh there's this phrase of of island time i don't know if yeah you've ever heard i was just about before. to say that yeah mm -hmm. i've experienced that when we we're late for the airport at vanuatu because yeah. a taxi driver just got there whenever he felt like it right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that is a real thing um yeah and what's happening there is that different people, depending upon their social status, where they're at, what they're doing, different people experience time in different ways. Now, do other species experience time? Again, that's, uh, I'm not, I'm not touching that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the problem that we don't have the answer is um, we've got a message from Digital Hammurabi oh, uh, who nice. said, uh, look at these two jokers on screen. Who on earth would listen to anything these atheists have to say? No spirit of God, no truth. Well, thank you, Digital Harabi. <laughs> he always comes in to uh, tell us. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> he always that. comes in. No, he's a good friend. He's a good friend of the good friend of the yeah. show. Good friend of mine. Wonderful person. Uh, and <laughs> speaking of a scholar, yeah. 
two scholars. Uh, yeah. Um, I think he can. I think Josh can only be mean ironically because he's just so kind. <laughs> all the other, the rest. Of the he is such a fun. nice person. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like have you seen that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine tries to get Jerry Seinfeld to be angry? And he just can't be angry. And then eventually he snaps it. I feel like doing that with Dr. Josh sometimes. Like, get him angry. Actually, talk about slavery and, and say that, um, tell me why slavery is wrong. And then you'll get him angry. Um, which is Understandably so. I mean, if there's one thing you should be getting upset about, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, are you with trying to convince people why slavery of all things is wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah um okay yeah you want me to talk about the yeah the distinction yeah, here? yeah. Okay. let's do the distinction yes so the there's been two two major uh theories of time that have existed since philosophy has existed uh this goes in the greek tradition this goes all the way back to plato and aristotle uh, you even see debates about the nature of time in uh, like ancient Indian philosophy of the Gupta Empire, like the fourth and fifth oh, wow. century BCE. Um, Confucius famously uh, didn't like metaphysical questions, so it you know kind of skirted. Confucius was funny because he said that um, he he would ask his uh, one of his followers asked him what happened after after we died. And uh, Confucius's response was, well, you haven't figured out how to live. So why are you concerned with what happens after you die? Um, so dodging the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I say all that to say, like, most peoples around the world thought about this question of time. Um, you know, the ancient uh, Mayas developed this very elaborate and ornate cosmology that's centered around this idea of cyclical time. Um, it's everywhere. Now you have two, two different views that have emerged. Um, one is this idea of substantive time, substantive time and relational time. So let me explain what that means. And I'm sorry, as soon as I, as soon as some guy with a philosophy background starts throwing around definitions, people just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Substantive time, substantive time is, is, is actually pretty straightforward. Substantive time, blah, 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 blah. Substantive time is the idea that time has substance to it, has a substance to it. And in philosophy, a su the substance of a thing is that thing's primary characteristics. Okay, so Aristotle developed this idea of substance and said that uh, different things have different substances. So the substance of a of a human is to be like animated, to be alive, right? We have this animating substance evident within all of us. Um, substance with respect to time, you, we, we've already talked about some of these characteristics. The substance of time might be that the most basic of, of which would be that time has a direction. Mm -hmm. We're moving from the past to the future. That's a that's an inherent quality or substance of time. So substantive theories argue that time has certain basic fundamental features to it. There are different types of substance theories, the most popular of which is called a theory of time, a the, the letter a, a theory of time. 
And what a theory of time states is that the different tenses, past, present, and future, are fundamental qualities. And I keep doing this because for me, when I think, I think in pictures. So mm-hmm. when I think of time as a substance, I think of the, the time bar, right? The, the, the flow of time. Mm-hmm. So a theory is a substantive view of time because according to a theory, past, present, and future are real fundamental features of what time itself is. In other words, you take away humanity from the picture, the past still exists. And the yeah, present okay. moment would still exist and the future yeah. would come to exist. Yep. I'm following. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. All right. So it's not like it's it's like it exists, but like in so much so that it's not it's not based purely on maybe I don't get it. It's not based purely on human understand the human like experience. Okay. Right. So it exists, when I talk about existence in the ontological sense, it exists independently of humans. And this okay, is, cool. yeah. I, I say that to distinguish it from the relational theory of time, which I'll, I'll get to yeah. here in a second. And what does it mean for time to exist? It exists in the sense that time tenses, past, present, and future, are real features of reality. There really was a past there really is a present. The moment that we're all currently experiencing right now is real, is tangible. And there, well, there are different views about this. And there really is, or at least there could be, a future. Mm-hmm. Now, so A theories, the, the, the two big theories, substantive view of time, relational view of time. Under the substantive view of time, we have A theory. Under A theory, you have about six different positions, which I won't go into, but yeah, okay. a bunch of different offshoots of it's like what the, that means. The, the six layers of hell or whatever in Dante's Inferno. <laughs> it goes all the oh, way Yeah, down, yeah, you know? yeah. I, I think it's like nine or I can't get, get it wrong, but anyway, keep going. No, no. So the, the easiest way to think of this would be that uh, some A theorists believe that uh, a form of what's called present, present, presentism, which is that only the present moment is real, mm-hmm. that the past isn't real, and that the future isn't real, that only now is real. Other a theory, like, uh, yeah. just like deep Deepak Chopra kind of philosophy. Um, yeah, the power Probably. of now and all that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Um, other a theorist would uh, support a position called the 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 growing block theory um the easiest way to imagine this uh most of the a theorists who support this take a very particular view of uh big bang theory which says Mm -hmm. that the universe began at a particular point in time and has been has since been expanding outwards Mm -hmm. the growing block theory would say that in that universe the past is real and the present moment is real, but the future doesn't exist yet. Okay. Because the okay. past we can observe, right? We can look at through a, a telescope and see the mm-hmm. past. It's there. It happened. That's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you also have something called the moving spotlight theory, which is a combination of A and B theory, but I don't, 
I think we're good on anything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and this is where it gets complicated and messy. So I said at the beginning of this pod or episode, podcast, YouTube. Yeah, podcast. Um, yeah. I said at the beginning that most physicists, most, and I even got to be careful with this, a large portion of 21st century physics lends itself best to B theory, not to A theory. But that is not to say that there you can't go look up a physicist right now who supports a version of A theory because they exist. I just I just read a book, uh, Richard Mueller, who argues for a version of A theory. He's a physicist. Okay. So okay. this isn't a this isn't a settled debate. I just want to yeah paraphrase that. It's prickly. Yes, yeah. very prickly. <laughs> Um, okay, so have, what is yeah. what is B theory then? Absolutely. So B theory, so you have the substantive view of time and you have the relational view of time. B theory is a relationist view of time. It's relationist in the sense that tense, past, present, and future only exist in relation to observers. Us. Okay. Okay. Right. Not only that, but you have extreme relationist position, which says that my past is my past, but not necessarily might not necessarily be your past, David. And so this is a completely relational relative. You have the, on the one end of the extreme, the completely relativist view of time, which is that all a sense of time is not only relational to the observer, but that every observer has their own sense in relation of time. Mm -hmm. So it's almost completely to use your language, almost completely socially constructed and conventional. Um, Interesting. And then somebody in the chat, uh, slam RN brought up eternalism. So B theory of time holds that, there is no privilege tense past present and future are all um on the same level so to speak because in the fundamental equations of relativity and in the fundamental equations of quantum mechanics um there really is no uh, time doesn't doesn't factor into it so there's no preference given and in some cases, like in relativity, they could actually be exchangeable. Mm -hmm. That it doesn't matter. And that when we talk in relativity, when we talk about a, a, a time, we're talking about a particular time, this specific instance that happened at that specific point. And that when we're talking about past, we're talking about past in relation to that point. Right. Or future in relation to that point. So that's why it's called relationalism, because those tenses, past, present, and future, are relation are relational to certain events, to those particular events. Okay. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> that makes sense. So is was Einstein a B theorist? Here's where it gets even more complicated. <laughs> okay. uh, he was, believe it or not, it depends on what P 
period of time with Einstein you're uh, talking about because he was actually both. Okay. He, he kind of fluctuated. Um, when he first developed his theory of relativity, so um, Einstein writes his first paper on relativity, the electrodynamics of moving bodies in 1905, um, and then starts to deliver a series of lectures at some German universities in 1915, 1920. Um, by, the, by the 1920s, Einstein is, a, is firmly within the B theory camp. Now, this is completely anachronistic historically. A theory, B theory, Einstein wasn't familiar with that, mm -hmm. but he would have been a B theorist. Yeah. Um, he starts to go over a little bit into A theory, and this is where it gets well outside of my comfort zone. Um, when he accepts the idea of the space-time manifold, so in, in general relativity, space and time become combined into one thing mm -hmm. and once you start to talk about things in philosophy you start to talk about substance that thing has a substance to it and once you say that an aspect of of space-time has a has a thingness to it has a, a substance so like space-time could be curved for example so it has attributes it has qualities that would exist if we didn't exist and so then you start to get into like this hybrid A slash B theory that Einstein kind of supported later in life. So that's why I say it's it's prickly, it's complicated, because even mm. with a single scientist, you're going to get some uh, some uh, backs, back and forth. So bef before you mentioned that we can observe the past because we can see through telescopes. So yeah. right now we're actually like, if you were actually sitting in front of me, technically you, I would be viewing the past because how, of how long it takes for the light to not like, I wouldn't be able to perceive it, but I could, you know, the, the, the time it takes the light from, to come from you to reach my eyes is there's a, there's a gap of time there. So I'm technically viewing the past, but a better example is, you know, we can see um, galaxies 13.8 um, billion uh, light years away. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like right at the start of the, uh, the, at the start of the universe. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's right. Like, and we see them how they were back then. Um, it's taken that long for the light to travel to us. Um, but someone asked the question, Aaron asked the question, if scientists one day build a telescope that can look into the future, how would that affect B theory? <laughs> Oh man. Um, and great yeah. great question Aaron. This Fantastic is exactly what question. I wanted. We needed we needed <laughs> we needed something. This is this is a Joe Rogan-esque question. Not that's not insulting by the way. Um to keep to keep this the scientific uh academic stuff uh fun. So great question. No, that's a that's an absolutely fantastic question. Um I got to think of how to how I want to approach this. So with Einsteinian relativity, a lot hinges in Einstein's uh, description of relativity on the speed of light. Um, Einstein uses the speed of light to kind of found uh, his physical definitions, his operational definitions of time. You can see this. Um, there's actually Einstein, by the way, just complete side note, and please don't let me lose track of that question because it's a great question. Einstein, by the way, extremely readable. Um, I would highly recommend even his early scientific articles aren't 
aren't math heavy. And mm-hmm. Einstein had a, a, an, a really awesome knack for explaining things in deceptively simple ways, um, which made his appeal like why. So uh, there's a, a wonderful book that he wrote. Um, it's actually based off a series of lectures. It's called The Meaning of Relativity. Mm-hmm. Um, these are a series of lectures that he actually gave at uh, an American university. Uh, explaining some of the general principles of relativity. Also, by the way, uh, check out his on the electric dynamics of moving bodies, the first first paper that he wrote about relativity. Like, actually, pretty readable, uh, even for a layperson, uh, for a non scientist, which is what I am. Um, it's digestible. It's understandable. Okay, so back to the question. Just so just so everyone knows, I've already got a link in the description. If you purchase that. You'll help the channel grow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. Link in the description. Uh, awesome. Link in the uh, comments. Keep going. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, okay. So it could build a telescope that can look into the quote future. How would that affect the theory? Um, all right. So our ability to look into the past is directly correlated with and related to the speed of light. And the speed of light actually plays a fundamental role in Einstein's theory of relativity because the speed of light provides a constant reference point to, de- to develop measures of time. If there wasn't a speed of light, Einstein's theory falls apart. If there wasn't a constant speed to the speed of light, I should say, Einstein's theory would fall apart because it provides a physical basis for his understanding of time that was crucial to him especially early on before uh, other um, empirical data started to come in, like in the 1920s and the 1930s. So what Einstein says is that, uh, very loosely speaking, um, time moves at the speed of light. So the further the distance, the further light has to travel, the potentially the the larger time dilation can take place, which is why when we look into a telescope at distant objects, why those objects appear to be in the past, it's not that they're in the past. This is is why language is super important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because in the past implies that you have this box that's the past and that object's in that box. Mm. What's happening there, the reason why it appears to us to be in the past is because of that light coming back. And with that light is the information about that object. So it's actually the light that is giving us the the appearance that we're looking at that object in the past. If you were to instantaneously snap yourself like the Goku instant transmission, not to show my anime cards here, right? If you were to instantaneously transport yourself to that object, it wouldn't appear how it just appeared to you through the telescope. Mm -hmm. So I don't, and again, not, not, not a scientist. I don't think that that theoretical there that was proposed, could you look into the future, build a telescope to look into the future? I don't think that would happen because again we're talking about light travel and we're talking about the information that's being uh quote unquote carried with the light Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of relativity, you can look into the past, right? But you the, the, the speed of light, since it's constant, it can't go faster than itself. You wouldn't be able to see light from the future. Right. Okay. 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 Now that's a very, uh, that's a philosopher's answer to a very scientific question. <laughs> mm. Okay. I'm going to throw some, uh, um, we can, we'll go, we can go back to the historical developments, but I think I'm going to just yeah. throw some random, or maybe this, this actually has more to do. Maybe it's part of the historical developments, but when I was a kid, my dad told me, tried to explain to me the concepts of relativity. I think it was relativity or time. Time, And so he was like, imagine you're on a train and you're, this is different to the your example, I think, but mm -hmm. imagine you're on a train and you're shooting backwards at the speed of light and you're looking at a clock face. You know, that clock face is, is um, you know, would stay still, right? Because the time, from your perception, the time is staying still um, because the light can't reach your face. The clock would still be moving, but the time would not, the the um, the light from the clock would not reach your face in time, right? Is that right? In time, oh my gosh. I sound so dumb. Baby brain is like, not having enough sleep is a real thing. My Holy crap. Do you get what I'm saying? So if you're, if you're in, yeah. 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 No, I, I think I think if I follow it correctly, I I think that that would be correct. So what causes what causes time dilation, what causes fluctuations in time, or what it call what causes objects really far out in space to appear in the past is the direct result of light. So if you if you take that analogy that you just gave, if I understand it correctly, so me, the observer, I'm looking at a a clock out in the distance. Oh, uh, no, you, you're looking at the clock, uh, I guess, in the same cart as you. Mm, okay. And you're, and you're shooting backwards at the speed of light. Mm. But the, and looking at the clock. So if you're, if you're going back, you know, just at regular speed, you'll see the clock ticking at the same speed. Right. But if you're going back at the speed of light, the clock should stay still because the light is um, traveling right. towards your face. But here's the thing, and this is, you know, pretending that we could create a, such a device, which is impossible. Right. But, but if we were to, if we were to do that, um, what would happen if we went faster than the speed of light? Would the clock start going backwards? Mm -hmm. And that's the question. That <sighs> yes, <laughs> it's a really <laughs> good question. Um, and this is it's thought experiments like this that uh, made people in the mid early 1915s and 1920s lose their freaking minds like okay. they just could not and I, I don't know if i still can understand but it's it's difficult because einstein an important thing to remember is that in these thought experiments einstein's talking uh theoretically uh, mm -hmm. and most of this is based off of mathematical calculations and so when he talks about clocks, he's talking about the theoretical clock. Right, right. right. He's not talking about a, a, an actual physical clock. And we're not, we're, we're talking like theoretically what would happen if you would approach the speed of light. Because as you said, that's physically impossible. Um, so like as long as we keep it abstract and as long as we stay theoretically, I don't have 
it'll I can't see a problem now. Physicists might be able to see a problem with the thought experiment, but like with the physical clock itself start moving backward, that's when we're we're out of my uh, ability to answer <laughs> questions. <laughs> Do you have Lauren uh, Lauren Class Class's uh, phone number? Just give him a buzz real quick. And yeah, that'd be nice. Right? Um, probably hate we, me, by the way. We have we have I think a special guest in the chat. Is uh, this the Maya that you're going on the channel for this? Uh, yeah, week? yeah. Hey, Maya. So Maya is here in the chat. Um, thank you for popping in. So you're going on to her channel this week, is it? It's Sunday, Sunday, two yeah. o'clock. Yes. Ah, awesome. So make sure you go over there, subscribe to Maya's channel. And also, um, may as well be a good time to make sure people go subscribe to your channel. Your channel yeah. uh, is, um, is fantastic. It deep dives into some really, really interesting content. And there was, you can see I watched a few of your uh, videos on this channel. Um, but, uh, where is the one that I was watching last night? Those you are my did a lives. fantastic, oh, these are your lives. One of your, the most fantastic interviews you've, you've done was that I really appreciated was virtue ethics and Christianity with Michael Jones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everyone gives Michael Jones, a lot of atheists give Michael Jones a bad rap. Um, fuck that noise. Michael Jones is <laughs> a badass dude. He's, he's so kind and friendly. Um, if you treat him that way um as well um so i really like michael we're good friends uh and that's a really great episode so many good episodes on here um i've been on the channel a few times um so go go subscribe to michael as well and subscribe to maya um yeah yeah ip uh, rocks i agree he's he's a cool he's he's, he's a cool guy as far as far as um uh what do i say he's the is i say he's the most intellectually honest a um apologist as an apologist mm -hmm. can be i think um so i, I really like michael but... he's a wonderful person to talk to very, yeah. very kind to me at least um and i i interview people from different faith backgrounds um so mm. i recently interviewed uh uh carlson from the midnight mormons um i've interviewed uh people from hindu backgrounds um I'm, I'm trying to find a muslim scholar to interview but uh religion and the history of religion is a is a kind of a pet side project of mine so yeah yeah super and it's super well balanced like interviews really respectful nice um it's cool i like it uh, it's the kind of thing uh, I was had, I had it on last night. We had a little I had a little baby Atlas, and I had it on last night watching Aww. it while uh, <laughs> while feeding him a bottle. So yeah. Well, you're uh, actually a big inspiration for that, David. You are. Uh, let me dote on you for a little bit. Um, one of my favorite interviewers out there. Easy. Oh wow! Thank and you. The, the the breadth of people that you've interviewed, like from the different backgrounds and the different subject matters, I think speaks to to your ability as a as an interviewer. So yeah. Oh, thank you. That's I'm trying true. very hard. I'm even considering going to a speech person so I can stop mumbling so much and saying ums and then and saying bokaka crack crack. Anyway, all right. Back to thank you for the compliments. Everyone, make yeah, sure you yeah. go subscribe to Maya. Go subscribe to Michael Granado. So back to the um, the development of time. So mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll, where should we go from here, Michael? Yeah, let's uh, let's maybe do a little bit of history since we've been doing all this philosophical jargon. Mm -hmm. Start early 20th century. So, um, like I said before, discussions and talks and debates about time go all the way back. Uh, some of the earliest philosophical school philosophic schools that we have is. Uh, 
they were they were talking and debating about time because it's such a basic feature of our reality where this gets complicated is with science um the first full scientific treatment of time comes from isaac newton um in newton's principle of mathematics in which newton argued that space and time are absolutes that they are absolute fundamental features of the universe and newton would take that a step further and say absolute fundamental features of god but different story for a different day we talked about this the last time i was on here so mm -hmm. we can reference that now for most of the 17th and 18th century people accepted newton's accounts of physics because newton was an absolute genius and the system of of physics that he developed his theory of gravity especially dominated science for 200 years easy it wasn't until the 19th century that people started to uh cast some questions and have some doubts about the newtonian picture of the universe this came in a bunch of different forms one of the biggest ways that people started questioning newton was actually in the form of debates and discussions about light itself so newton was the first person to develop a theory of optics why things have colors um he wrote an entire book on it called optics um Thomas Young, who was a British scientist in the 19th century, don't quote me on that, um, was the first person to start to provide experiments with light that started to diverge from Newton's account. And the biggest way that Young's description of light diverged is that Young argued, Newton argued that light was a particle, that the light we see are these little tiny particles coming from the source that's hitting our eyes and our brains are interpreting what they're saying. Um, uh, he, he called them corpuscles. It's just an ancient way of saying particles. Uh, Thomas Young argued that light actually behaved and moved in waveforms. So Young was the first to develop this uh, double slit experiment, which creates patterns, wave-like patterns uh, that we can observe through light. Um, in addition to Young, you have the development of the 19th century, uh, super nerdy, I'm sorry, the development of non-Euclidean geometry in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so Euclidean geometry was pretty straightforward in the sense that uh, people believed that mathematics corresponded to reality. Yeah, this is the double slit experiment. So can that- you explain what, Can you explain what's going on here? Fair I front? can try. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so this is the this is the basic one devised by Young. Now Young didn't have an electric light; it was like a candle, but same basic idea. So you you have the light source that's of course emitting the light, and then you have the the first panel which has these slits in it. The light passes through those slits, and what you observe in that darker panel is a is an interference pattern, and an interference pattern. For physicists, and I won't be able to explain this part. An interference pattern shows wave-like function. The light particles are dis dispersed in wave-like patterns. So the reason why this is important is because if light was a particle, 
like Newton had suggested, you shouldn't have all those, you shouldn't have all those different slits that appear, slits of light. You should just have one of those. Right. Because if, if light was one thing, particles move in one direction, right? And yeah. you can predict the, the motion of that particle in the same way. Let, let's, let's go, let's, let's expand it up for a second. In the same way that you could track and predict the motion of a car that's driving down a highway, you ought to be able to do the same thing with the pattern. There's one place that that car is going and there's mm -hmm. one expected outcome or location that that car is going. But with light, you observe something different. So even, and what I, what I know, I think about this and correct me if I'm wrong, is we can now measure it obviously with, with a single photon. So one photon of light can come through and it can land on this board. And if you cover one of the slits, it still acts as if there are, is that interference pattern, but it, as if there was two, as if, so yeah, you can fire one yeah. photon, one photon, one photon, one photon, and then you still get this same um, wave, which means that this, that, 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 that light acts as a wave as well as a particle. So it's like a bit yeah. of both. Yeah, so yeah. that's what that, that's what we come to understand in the in the twentieth century. So that's my Big Bang Theory TV show <laughs> analysis of the of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we started to get these questions in the nineteenth century with uh, discoveries about light um, and new developments of new mathematical systems, which leads us to the the twentieth century. And in the 20th century is when uh, Einstein's the one that kicks all this off. Um, it's actually pretty rare in the history of science for a single individual to make like such a monumentous breakthrough. It's almost always done as a team or by a group of people. But Einstein and Newton, respectively, are, are like those the, the stereotypical soul geniuses. Right? <laughs> and um, Einstein starts to develop this idea based off of um a couple of big things the new developments that had taken place about light but also uh, a very very important experiment which was done in the late 19th century was called the mitchelson morley experiment and what the the mitchelson morley experiment was probably one of the most famous scientific failures so in the big question about light is how does light move? So you, you have these conversations about light's a particle, light's a wave, what is it, right? Um, the, the, the more fundamental question is what does light move through? So we have light waves and the idea was that, you know, we have sound waves. Well, sound moves through the medium of air. That's how like hearing works. Right. The, the, I, and again, not my area, but the, the sound comes to us, hits our eardrums, it vibrates, and then we hear what we hear. Right. And so the thought process was well, a similar mechanism ought to be happening with light. And that, that mechanism, that medium that was proposed, going back to Newton, was this thing called the ether. Mm. Newton said that there was this substance called the ether which pervaded all of space and that the ether was the mechanism through which light moved so if if light is the car the ether is the highway to use an analogy well 
the Mitchelson-Morley experiment was an attempt to detect, it assumed that the ether existed, and it was an attempt to detect whether or not uh, the Earth moving through space would experience ether drag. And this, this, this is just as bad as my description about philosophy. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but it, it, so, so you have space and you have the Earth rotating around the sun, right? Hmm. Well, the thought process was if the ether exists, then the ether would be causing some pushback on the yeah. motion of the Earth in the same way that a car going down the highway is going to get some resistance and some drag from the wind. So the Mitchelson-Morley experiment was an attempt to measure the ether drag, the effect that the ether was having on the Earth to, to, to learn more about the ether. Hmm. The results of the Mitchelson-Morley experiment were uh, null. There were no observable effects. Hmm. And this caused people to fundamentally doubt whether or not the ether was a thing. So Einstein comes along, he reads this experiment, and he's kind of taken aback by it because everybody assumed that ether existed. And everybody assumed that ether would have some sort of effect on light, especially. Or I've had the... some flat earthers argue with me that the ether still does exist. So, <laughs> right. I guess that's they don't. Only, that's the only, the only, the only not even know what the ether is. It's because flat earthers <laughs> told me that's actually how things. Anyway, keep going. That's funny. Uh, I, 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 for some reason, it doesn't surprise me that people still think that. Yeah. Um, because it, it was a. I mean, it was a big deal at the time. It was over a hundred years mm. ago, but it's still like it dumbfounded people. Like that's like us people doing tests on gravity and realizing that, oh yeah, gravity's not really a thing. Like that was a big deal for people. Right? Well, that's what flat earthers also thinks. Anyway, Maybe I, the flat earth is a right after all. <laughs> I was about to say, I, I actually came on this podcast to say that the earth is in fact, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Imagine you just dropped that. Like I am a flat earther guys. I've been convinced. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. So yeah. So th this was a, th this, this, this created like a sort of a upheaval in turn of the century physics, turn of the 20th century physics. Like everybody was talking about this, such a big problem. Well, Einstein is, is thinking about the results of the Mitchison-Morley experiment. He's thinking about light and the experiments that were done with light. And because Einstein was a gigantic nerd, he's also thinking about trains and clocks. And so he's, he's putting together these thoughts experiments about uh, the train leaving one station. And to be fair, like this was a super practical concern. Um, time okay. zones, as y'all know, uh, or you may know, didn't really come along till a little bit later. I don't know exactly when, so don't quote me on that. But international travel started to become more and more popular and accessible come the 20th century. So mm -hmm. by the early 20th century, you know, people are flying, uh, not flying yet, not yet. Uh, people are taking boats and trains from one from France to Germany and from Germany to Italy and they're taking boats from the UK to America. Well, now all of a sudden, this question of time is not just a theoretical question. It's a practical question. What happens when I take my clock from the UK, hop on a boat and sail all the way to the America? Why to the Americas? Why is my 
why is my clock different from the clock at the Times Square now? Mm-hmm. So Einstein's thinking about all of this, and he takes those questions about trains and clocks and light and applies it to light, and he, he finds some uh, troubling results. The troubling result is that some of the basic concepts that we had about time, specifically concepts about simultaneity, events happening at the same time, that simultaneity was no longer an absolute. I have an image to pop up. Yes, that's it. Good. Yes. So the, the... both Einstein and Heisenberg will call into question certain basic assumptions that people had held to be true. The question that Einstein's going to call into question is this idea of whether or not something can happen at the same time to two observers. And Einstein's going to say, depending upon the speed of one of the observers, um, simultaneous, there's no absolute simultaneity because there's no absolute time. And so we have a slow unraveling of the entire Newtonian worldview. So this is the this is a picture of the train experiment. So you have a, a stationary observer who's on the train platform watching the train go down the tracks, and you have another observer on the train. And you have the events B and A, lightning strike, that happen for the stationary person. Why? happen, quote, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, the question that Einstein raises is, will those lightning strikes appear to happen at the same time for both observers? The guy on the train and why? And Einstein's answer to that question is no. <laughs> would it be perceivably no or would it just be no? Like It would be perceivably no. Really? That the guy on the train would experience the lightning strike at A before he experienced the lightning strike at B. Interesting. Because of his movement, right? Because of the movement, yes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that question that you just had is the question that literally every single philosopher and scientist who read Einstein's paper, they're going to say like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up a second. Yeah. Hold up a second. So the first question they're going to raise is like, well, how is this possible? But they're going to get more specific and say like, physically, how is this possible? Like, let's assume that Einstein's right. There's this, there's this debate that erupts in a a conference that happened in Paris in 1911. And there's this French philosopher named uh, Leminston who stands up and says like, who, who basically does like the stereotypical, like argumentative philosopher thing and says, Hey, listen, by the way, there's no absolute sense of time anymore. There's no absolute sense of simultaneity. We all have different times, your times different from nine time. And I can prove it using Einstein and people like, like verbal arguments, like people were standing up, like shouting at each other and arguing with each other. It was great. <laughs> wow. And the question is over whether or not Einstein's whether or not this thought experiment applies to biological time. Yeah. So 
if we were to physically carry out this experiment, their question was the same as your question. Would that person physically, biologically experience time differently? And Einstein will double down and say, yes, they would. Wow, that's interesting. Um, and of course, that like, what is that? How do we wrap our heads around that? Right. That's the yeah. That, that's the big question. I don't know if this is a good time to talk about the twin paradox. Um, yeah, yeah, to jump yeah. straight into another thought experiment. Mm -hmm. But it's my understanding that the twin par paradox, like, is has actually happened with like astronauts that have spent time in space. Yeah, very slightly, not noticeably, yeah. but not perceivably, but it's accurately. Mm -hmm. So can you explain the twin paradox for us? Yeah. So really simply, the twin paradox is you take two identical twins, you put one in a rocket ship. Well, before you do that, you give them both clocks, you sync their clocks together, start the clocks. You put one in the rocket ship, send them out in the space, have the ship, have the twin in the rocket ship, approach the speed of light, come back to earth. There we go. And when the twin comes back to Earth, what will they uh, see? What will they encounter? That the person who stayed on Earth would have grown significantly older, while the twin in the rocket ship would have remained basically the same age. So if you could literally like shoot out at the speed of light for like you know six months, you come back and and uh, and that your twin would be 10 years older than you or exactly. something like that, right? Exactly. And this raises further questions about the difference between physical time and biological time. Okay. And what Einstein will say, even though Einstein's not a biologist, and even though none of these experiments had been carried out, it wasn't until recently that we did we actually did the twin paradox experiment. What Einstein will say, he'll be committed to this idea that biological time will have to resemble physical time because there's no different they're the same thing hmm. but the difference would be that biological time is just a measure of time that's limited to my body right i have my own biological clock in the form of my physical body and so the the twin paradox will raise some this raises the question of of time travel right? hmm. which is what i get asked about a lot and my answer to this question of time travel is that time travel in relativity theory, I can't speak for wormholes and quantum mechanic time travel, like what we just saw with like Ant-Man and stuff like that. I'm, we're not talking about that. Um, time travel in relativity theory is actually like not very sexy, <laughs> not as sexy as the, as the movie time travel because Einstein's theory of relativity assumes B theory of time, Time is relational to the observer. So if we have two observers, time is relational to the movement of each person. So time travel is only possible for one of them. And mm -hmm. it's only possible in relation to that other observer. You don't travel through time in this sense, in the same way that the car travels down the road. It can go forward and backward. That sort of travel is not possible. What is possible in the twin paradox, what the twin paradox shows us is that one twin will biologically age while the other does not. 
in relation to each other. So, okay. So a couple of things. One, uh, Anna, uh, uh, Anazia, I hope you, that's how I say your name, said, <laughs> but how? Which is a great question. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, and, and secondly, um, uh, uh, Slam RN keeps talking about the Kelly twins. Now, when I said it's been tested, I, I literally thought it was like hypothetically tested as in like they've sent a twin to, okay, can you tell me a little bit about the Kelly twins then? Uh, I don't, I don't really know anything about this. Um, all I okay. can say is, um, that this was twist. Uh, so the Kelly twins are, are astronauts, or at least one of them was an astronaut identical twins. And they, they fed, they physically tested this by literally carrying out the one, one twin, they both were giving clocks. Those clocks were synced. One of the twins spent time on the International Space Station. And when they came down, the, is, it's, we're talking fractions of a second here. Yeah. But the twin who was on the space station's clock was a little slower than the other twins. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, because they spent, it was like, because in order for it to work, you have to be going at like incredibly fast speeds. Um, and so, you know, on the space station, um you're going at fast speeds and nowhere near is fast enough but he spent like six months or something up there right right, right. yeah and there was a, a slight time difference so if we can take that example and amplify the speed of the person in space and amplify the amount of time that they spend in space the greater the time gap gets is, mm -hmm. is what that means so yeah we actually empirically verify this which is mind-blowing Wow. Absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's so crazy. <laughs> wow. Uh yeah, so um to Anazia's question, how? <laughs> <laughs> uh so this is the fun part where I get to say, um I don't know. Just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's mind blowing. I mean, I'm right there with you. I've been um I've been reading about Einstein and I've been reading about all of the multifaceted philosophical implications of the twin paradox and the train experience for literally the past six years. And I, I'm still trying to still trying mm. to wrap my head around it. It's a, it's a uh, great question. Slam RN also points out that um, it's uh, it changes depending on where grab, like how, mm. how, how um, heavy the gravity, how heavy my gosh. Um, how intense the gravity is. Um, yeah. So like around a black hole, for example, if you could like somehow sit on the on the cusp of a black hole, time does some really weird things. Can you explain a little bit about that? No. I was right at the edge of my reasoning. I was like, I'm oh, hoping I was throwing the ball in there, hoping you could catch it, but none of us. No, you're, you're right. Okay. You're right. Uh, again, uh, black holes... I don't think didn't come around and weren't theorized until like the, the sixties and seventies, I think is when Hawking first released his equations. And my, my knowledge of the history of science stops at the forties. So that's where I cut it off. That gravity is pretty heavy. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I promise I'm not this dumb. I just, I just really tired, <laughs> but uh, I'm trying, I'm trying. So, um, so how does this, so maybe we should maybe we could wrap up the historical developments by just talking about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah. Uh, let's just cover all the controversial stuff. No. Um, 
this is this is probably this is without a doubt one of those areas that um i think we might have uh jesus and the 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 history people history of religion people beat here in terms of misquoting and misunderstanding um there's so much so much uh woohoo is the is the right word surrounding the heisenberg's uncertainty principle but um so 20th century physics is defined by two two major developments first and foremost is relativity theory without a doubt which is what i already talked about developed by albert einstein um 1905 is the first paper 1920 is the first lectures that's delivered uh by 1922 we have our first empirical evidence confirming relativity theory um also starting in the 1920s this goes back little prior to this in the 19th century with conversations about atoms and subatomic particles especially with the invention and development of the microscopes in the early 20th century is along with the development of relativity you have the development of um at the time it was called microphysics what today we call quantum mechanics which is the physics of really really small stuff so just what that translates to um, so Heisenberg publishes his paper in 1925, and this is how Bachelard explains it. What Einstein does to time and simultaneity, Einstein fundamentally calls into question the understanding of our understanding of simultaneity with his paper. Heisenberg will do the same thing with location and place. So again, one of our most basic intuitions about reality is that this sounds stupid to say things have locations <laughs> things are located in space right yeah the pin is located right here well it's actually not so silly and stupid because as it turns out <laughs> locate heisenberg will take that definition and understanding of location and we just throw it out the window so Heisenberg's uncertainty principle deals with the location of the electron around the nucleus of an atom. And this gets complicated. And this all of all of what I'm telling you now is, is from a book that uh, Bachelard wrote on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's called uh, The Concept of Space and Physics. Um, currently untranslated. I'm trying to get it published. So any publishers out there? Um, so he, he takes this idea and he says that, um, so Heisenberg takes this idea of the, the location of the electron. At an everyday level, this is pretty straightforward, right? Think back to your high school physics class. If you were uh, tracking the movement of a car, let's say, and I gave you the speed, of the car and the direction the car is going and i pinpointed where the car is currently located on the map you would be able to tell me where that car would be in an hour or two hours right mm -hmm. um well, it's pretty either. straightforward yeah. right <laughs> not yeah. Me yeah. 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 again a failed high school hour. i'd giggle it yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but this is what our our, our current uh gps uh satellite positions are, are based off of right they could do it like in an instant, you'll arrive at your destination in an hour and 30 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is 
fundamentally impossible to do at a quantum level. So Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that you can track the speed of an electron or you could track the position of the electron, but you can't track both. Well, you could try to. It's just you're, as many times as you do the experiment, that's how many results you're going to get, different results. Whoa. Yeah. So Boschlard says that Heisenberg complexifies our understanding of location. Yeah. He makes complicated this very simple idea that object A is located here and says at a big level, yes, but at a quantum level, we can't exactly say that. You could say one, but not the other, right? There's actually an equation for it that uh, I, I won't attempt to recite. Um, now, th this has to do with a, a couple of reasons, one of which is not super sexy. The other one's a little bit sexier. Um, the first reason that has to do with is limitations in our technology. Because quantum objects are so small, electrons can are going to be physically affected by photons. So the microscope, in the act of observing the location of the electron, let's say that my my, this, my left fist is the electron. As the electron's moving, that photon's going to come in and disrupt mm -hmm. it, knock mm -hmm. it out of place. And so this is where this idea of the act of observation affects the result. Here's the misunderstanding. It's not consciousness that's affecting the result of the experiment. It's the, the physical photons from the light that's impacting the experiment. So it's not this like, our consciousness affects reality. It's it's our it's our sight that's affect. It's the it's the photons from our sight that's affecting the reality. If that makes sense. Uh, I'll rewatch this stream when when it uh, is posted because like I'm 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 right on the cusp of following along. I think <laughs> yeah, but it goes even deeper than that. So on the one hand, we have this measurement problem. Okay. So the, the question is going to be, well, what if we improve our tools? What if we get better microscopes? We would be able to fix the measurement problem. And Heisenberg still says no. That even with the best microscopes that we're able to develop, that there is a fundamental uncertainty at the quantum level in the results that we're going to get. So here's the here's the here's Bachelard's uh interpretation of that here's the kicker here's the the upshot of all of this and this is where we're going to get we're going to move away from the science and get a little bit more philosophical mm -hmm. so the big problem that Bachelard is trying to figure out is why is our physical descriptions of time in physics why are they so different from our everyday experience of time that's the original problem that we started with, right? Mm -hmm. Boschlard's answer to that question is that they're actually not all that different. And although 
our surface level appearance of time seems to us to conflict with physics, the more we rational, rationally understand and analyze it, the more we realize that, that it's physics all the way down. So uh, Bachelard takes Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and says that the experience of time is the same as the experience of the electron. And that when we understand quantum objects and quantum particles, we have to do so, I'm gonna introduce another mathematical term, topologically. So we can understand the probability distribution of the electron, but we can't isolate and study the electron in and of itself. It's not going to give us much information if we do that. And it's not going to, to lead us to any much useful information if we do that. So instead, we have to, to use Bachelard's words, analyze it from the top down, topologically. Mm. Then once we do this, we can get an understanding of how quantum particles work in toto as a whole, as opposed to individually. Bachelard says that time, as we experience it, works analogously to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in that we experience time in these instantaneous moments. We have these moments of consciousness in which we consciously act in time. But Bachelard says it doesn't do us any good, and he's arguing against Bergson here, but he says it doesn't do us any good to isolate those moments to try to figure out, okay, well, what is the quality of time in that particular moment? Or what is the fundamental aspect of time that remains the same? Instead, what we have to do is interpret the flow or movement of our life as a whole in the same way that we interpret musically a song. So songs mm -hmm. can be broken down into individual notes the ABC, yeah. I don't know anything about music. But we don't hear, when we listen to music, we don't hear like one note, another note, another note. Another, we, we hear it as a as a whole. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a right? great analogy. I can't take any credit for it. But oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all Bachelard, yeah. So we, we, we see it as a, as a whole, right? And so this is how we, this is Bachelard says, how we have to approach the time of our lives. And why this is important is because this is how, to use a psychological term, this is how narrative meaning works in our lives. The narrative mm -hmm. meaning is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So when we look at narrative meaning, we're not approaching it from a particular moment. We're approaching it topologically from a whole. And this is important because individual moments think about i was going to say think about the most traumatic thing that ever happened you don't think about that you can think about the happiest <laughs> thing that ever happened to you right individual moments for bachelard the reason why this analogy is important is because they're they're flexible they're malleable what 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 a, an event meant to us one day can mean something different to us the next day what happened that traumatic experience that I'm thinking of from my childhood that scarred me for life and put me in therapy all these years, I can years later in my therapist office say, well, you know what? I actually learned something from that. Hmm. So we, we have this time as experienced, argues Bachelard, is, is not the time of our lives moving from 
past to the future, but is rather this malleable, changeable thing, analogous to the electron, um, that's more similar to the, the descriptions that's offered by physics. So Bachelard says that we have to not trust our, as, as difficult as it is, we have to not trust our intuition or our common sense understanding, but to accept this the system of rationality given to us by theories like relativity or quantum mechanics and apply it to areas that we otherwise wouldn't, such as the interpretation of our life events. And that's the that's the sermon that I was going to give. So <laughs> well, uh, well done, people. If you have questions, start um, pouring in now. I've got a lot to get, uh, a lot of things to get through. Uh, Pippa said, uh, "Welcome, Pippa." They said that felt wrong. If the Zerber effects were the result of mere photons, it would occur when no observation takes place. It's a measurement problem. That's the result of the photons. Oh, okay. um, the 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 I, I do want to emphasize that for Heisenberg, though, this is a a method a lot that uncertainty is is there at a at the most bottom level that it's fundamental to quantum mechanics but mm. that the observer effect that is sometimes related to heisenberg's uncertainty principle is a direct result of the photon hitting the electron okay. that's what's causing the problem yeah but again so, not a scientist <laughs> so if people don't know i'm a um uh former youth pastor um now agnostic atheist who makes these videos does these interviews on religion philosophy and science but my only credentials are really in marketing and that's a i got i i worked in marketing for a while and now I've got a post degree um postgrad degree i somehow got into that without having a bachelor which was cool but the uh, but but one of the other, I have a couple of certificates, a certificate in Christian ministries, but one of the other certificates I have is a certificate in geographic, geologic, uh, geographic information systems. So I work for a surveying and town planning firm and someone said, um, Slim Iron said, when they sent the first satellites, scientists told the engineers that they would have to allow for the slowing of time, like for GPS. The engineers did not believe this, um, but put on a system in case. Uh, turns out the scientists were correct. Uh, and that brings me to a funny anecdote that happened in the surveying community. And um, two things. One reason I know that the Earth is not flat, going back to the flat Earth things, is we have to put we have to put uh, algorithms in our data recorders that project two D plans onto a spherical Earth, right? Because when you mm. when you're making plans in in the um, in the computer and you, you you know you're talking seconds of degrees and millimeters of height you have to project them onto a spherical earth and depending on if you're going over 200 meters or something for a set out it, it makes a slight difference um so 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 you know that formula is there uh and, uh, and yet i've explained this to my friends and family who are flat earthers and they just i don't know what they do but what was really interesting is in the surveying industry uh our GPS systems in, I think, 2010 just went whack, and like not to a to a to a consumer level, but to a um, spatial scientist level. Well, like, why the world was like, why are our GPS systems going funny? And the reason was is because China built a dam that was so big that it put a wobble in the Earth's orbit. What? So really? yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, the jo uh, the Three Georges Dam. It put it slowed the orbit of the Earth and it put a wobble in the orbit so much so that our GPS systems went out of whack, and we had to put uh, they had to work out the they had to put compensation algorithms into the scientific uh, into the 
instruments to um, account for this wobble of this uh, of this slowing. It's really oh really interesting. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you, uh, people, for showing up. Though it's really nice to see some new faces in the comments. It's great um, to yeah. see that. We uh, we also uh, so question for Michael. Um, why does time move faster on Sunday afternoon than on Wednesday morning? <laughs> it's a fantastic question. Yeah. Um, so th this ties into something that I forgot to, to say. Uh, and so let me say it and then I'll, I'll answer this. So, um, another thing that complicates this, this, this question and discussion about time. So I made this distinction between physical time, time as described by physics, biological time, time as experienced by biological organisms. An aspect of biological time is the our psychological experience of time. And part of the reason why people objected so much to Einstein, there's a lot going on there, but psychology hadn't really developed into its own science yet. And so, for example, Einstein and Henry Bergson get into this big debate. Bergson's objections are primarily psychological because for Bergson time, you can't talk about time without talking about our, our psychological experience of time. And Einstein outright dismisses that. Uh, Einstein actually says there is no time of the philosophers. And by philosophers, he means psychologists. So he was pretty much wrong about that. But <laughs> just want to throw that out there, that there was actually like legitimate grounds for that discussion. And the legitimate grounds was that psychology wasn't really a thing yet. But the people who were like proto-French psychologists were saying, well, well, wait a second, we can actually like measure this stuff. Like we can actually like run these experiments. And so to get back to Titan's question, which was why does time feel like it flows faster on Sunday? Um, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just laughing. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the answer to that is that the, the, we have this like old adage that time flies when you're having fun. Like that's observable. Like most people report that happening. Hmm. Um, the same way that time goes by really slow when you're sitting at work and waiting for it to hit five o'clock and you're staring at the clock and it seems like it's moving like incredibly slow. Um, yeah, like, and again, I can't speak to this cause I'm not a psychologist, but, um, there's a, there's a ton of research out there. There's a book by, there's a, there's a psychologist I really like named David Engelman, I believe is his last name. He has this, uh, paper called brain time and physics physical time i can't remember the exact description but he talks a lot about this um and this has been something that's been observed like across the board so there is something to that is i said all that to say that yes there is something in fact to that but ask no. a psychologist about it not me <laughs> uh so uh, aaron said uh i feel like i would both understand this subject better and worse if i was <laughs> I, I would agree, except I'll be having a panic attack. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so uh, question for Michael, after all your research and study, what is time to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Just give us the answer. Yeah, right. <laughs> if only. Um, I lean towards, uh, it appears to me that B theory is 
I'm leaning more and more towards B theory. Okay. Now there, there are some complications to that. The complication being the uh, growing block theory, which is kind of a hybrid of A theory and B theory of time that has gotten increasing support by some physicists. But I'll tell you, the person that I default to is an Italian scientist named Carlo Rivelli, who wrote a absolutely fantastic book called the, I think it's called The Order of Time or The Nature of Time. Um, he's one of the clearest writers, uh, physicists out there that's writing about time. Um, Rivelli is also, unlike other ph physicists like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who hate philosophy, unjustly so, Ravelli is philosophically literate. I'm just going to take random shots at famous scientists. <laughs> Do it. It'll be. I'll, I'll cut into shorts and we'll. Uh, Tyson, if, if you want, ever want to debate me about the validity <laughs> of philosophy, I'm more than happy to accept. And I'll rest. He definitely watches. Neil deGrasse Tyson is actually a big uh, watcher right. of this podcast. I'll just say he loves yeah. it. He's always emailing me afterwards. <laughs> but uh, Carlo Ravelli. Uh, and he's wonderful to listen to because he's got this beautiful Italian accent. Um, but yeah, he's he's also very philosophically literate, and um, he, he's written a couple papers on uh, defending the relationist account of time, uh, and that's what I find most convincing now. But this is also a reflection of my background, which is exploring the history of relativity, and <coughs> the history of relativity up until general relativity is more closely aligned with B theory. Now, other scientific theories, especially once we start getting into space time and time within quantum mechanics, people have made the argument that maybe it's a growing block, but I'm, I'm leaning more now towards B theory. If I had to choose, if you, you know, put a gun to my head and made me choose life or death situation, I'd say B theory, but I'm also, I'm only like, 60% sure about that. Okay. All right. That's good. That's, I know nothing, and B theory feels more intuitive to me. Um, so um, I got one, I got a couple more last questions, but um, I, I did want to quickly mention something, and this is big. Well, I'm mentioning that I will have some big news. The biggest thing that Deep Drinks has ever done and will uh and i've ever done ever on the internet um will be announced sometime in the next week uh it, this what? has been in the works and for a little while and i um i'm very excited to tell everyone about it it's um i've only told some close personal friends that we've finally locked it in but mm. stay tuned uh, in the next week hopefully i'll have an official announcement uh, and we also, you can also connect on Discord um, to get involved in the conversation. Uh, I've been pushing really hard for deep drinks, trying to get deep drinks across to a th over a thousand subscribers, because that's the magic number where I can start uh, getting super chats and things like that, which will help uh, me continue to do um, this and get some more interesting guests. Some guests requiring sp require speaking fees. I also want to travel around and do in-person interviews. I want to create more content, and I eventually want to do this full-time, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been going nuts um, with uh, Baby Atlas by my side, making um, shorts. So if you like, um, flick through some of these shorts that I've been creating. They take me like five hours to edit, actually. They actually put a lot of work into making them snappy. But um, they'll show like episodes that you can watch 
um, and share it with all your friends. But mainly, stay tuned for this really cool big news. Um, I'm super excited. I can't wait to tell everyone. Um, it is exciting. So I'll tell you after the after we get off. I'll tell yeah, you I was gonna say. I... <laughs> uh so uh i got a question from lauren i'll just post this and lauren is the friend that i was talking to last night um she hasn't been able to watch live um why do you think psychedelics and ketamine changes the perceiver's perspective on time so a big thing that i hear amongst my friends who have engaged in such activities is that they're like i lived a million lifetimes in two minutes why do you think that is oh man yeah, it's <laughs> a good question. Um, well, I, I think that this this does show us something about the nature of time, which is um, I don't want to I don't want to discount the the psychological experience of time, and at the same time, I want to emphasize Bachelard's point, which is that the psychological experience of time might be closer than we initially thought to descriptions of physical time. And the reason why I bring that up in this case is that for Einstein especially, time is intimately linked with the observer. Time is relative and relational to the observer. So one observer is going to experience time differently from another observer. And with psychedelics and with other drugs that you start to introduce to your body that start to affect the chemical makeup of your brain the fact that it affects time speaks to the relative nature of it mm, that's what i thought yeah that's so what i think it's it's like you know how they, you put people in an mri or something when they're on type of sort of shrooms or something um, once again, also, I'm not advocating for the use of psychedelics. Um, I know that they can be, there, there's some research that they can be really beneficial under the right context, but I also have friends and family who have misused them to the point where they've ended up in mental institutions. Um, so yeah. uh, I'm not advocating for anyone to take them unless um, right. under professional situations, but people who with who take like large amounts of shrooms or something under an MRI, you can see that they're... Uh, their their brain like parts of their brain are active that aren't normally active and it's it's almost like it's almost like you know how like the the um you know when you're talk like the, the quote by einstein that probably isn't by einstein but um that's uh, my hang on something's going a bit funny um that quote by einstein that you know if you're talking to a pretty lady that you know time will go really slow or if you're on a sunday time will go really, it or or a pretty man I'm not trying to be biased here, but the 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 thing is is um is like you know maybe parts of your brain are lighting up differently, and that's why like part, you're you're more aware um socially. So maybe when you're doing psychedelics, those parts of your brain are just like firing, and as a result, you perceive time differently. I don't know. That's my thoughts. That makes sense to me. Um, I'm sure there's a psychologist out there who could speak to it uh, and kind of break it down and explain it better. But I think what this reveals philosophically is that there's an element to time that is one, highly subjective, and two, physically dependent upon our perception of it. I think those would be the important takeaways mm. there. Yeah. Cool. Um, so 
I have a question uh, that I ask all um, guests. So when, when you're on here um, the first time, um, I asked you, I th I'm pretty sure I asked you, uh, what if anything would change your mind? That's a question mm. I like to ask everyone. Uh, and I also ask you, what's your favorite type of afterlife, if you could choose one? And you gave a really interesting one. You gave the Egyptian afterlife, which was cool. Right. But I have a question now um, that uh, it's not really related to time, but as we wrap up, I like to ask a deep question. Um, what what is the most plausibly true religion <laughs> that you don't believe in? <laughs> oh boy. You just had to throw something like that in there. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, mm, most plausibly true religion. Well, let me relate it to time real quick. Yeah. So there's uh, some religious traditions, not religions, because the religious traditions I'm thinking of are from Christianity, but Christians have vastly different views of God. Um, and there's an entire tradition within Christianity about Christian theologians and philosophers reflecting on the relationship between God and time. So as I mentioned before, um, people like Newton believed that absolute time was a fundamental feature of God. And some theologians and philosophers' conception of God is directly tied into kind of strict atheist accounts of God or of time. Mm -hmm. So I am, I am more, and I'm not going to tell religious people what to believe or how they should believe because that's stupid. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But um, <clears throat> this applies to philosophy as well, by the way. Um, I think your philosophical and or religious ideas should at least be uh, scientifically coherent. So, or at least scientifically plausible, or at least not scientifically contradictory. Hmm. So there are certain types of arguments, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument put forward by philosophers, theologians like William Lane Craig, um, that argument's actually predicated on a particular view of a theory of time. Whoa, really? Yeah. Interesting. That the universe had the beginning and that everything begins to exist. Yeah, I never I never thought about that. Right. How interesting. And, it, and if you listen to Craig, he actually has to commit himself to a defense of a theory of time because of that. Wow. But, and to Craig's point, uh, to Craig's credit, I should say, he'll offer mathematical proofs. The issue is, is that the empirical evidence seems to suggest otherwise. And so for me, you're kind of fighting a losing battle there uh, to have an entire, to have an entire philosophical, in this case, and also a religious idea hinge upon um, a theory of time that's not super commonly accepted. Hmm. Yeah. So Craig uh, support, I believe it's been a while since I read any of his stuff, but he, he, he supports uh, uh, an A theory of time, um, the growing block theory of time. So he'll say that, you know, that the past was real and that the, the present's real. Um, 
but he does have to commit himself to a form of a theory. And if you look at his actual book that he wrote about the Kalam, he actually goes into more detail about that. Yeah. But I think that's a, and I've had conversations with philosophers. These are people that aren't even religious. I, I, I don't want to bust myself out here on the off chance that my thesis advisor listens to the, he doesn't listen to anything. I I'm actually more afraid of my thesis advisor, but because um, <laughs> at least he understands philosophy. unlike Tyson. Um, <laughs> but um, I presented to a, a group of philosophers a couple of weeks ago and they said, well, you know, I just really prefer what Bergson has to say about time. And I think that Bergson's description of time is more like fundamental. But when you take that position, like they're what they're not admitting is that Bergson's account of time is is at odds with our basic understanding of relativity. So like, mm -hmm. why would you put yourself in that position? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. It's like me saying like, you know, Darwin was cool, but you know, I'm not sure I'm super on board with the whole like evolution thing. Like you're, you're putting yourself in a, that's an uphill battle, man. That's, <laughs> that's tough. So I would say the same thing in terms of scientifically plausible. Um, so long as it doesn't conflict with basic established scientific theories, it's, it's cool. Cool. It would be, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, just, uh, just to shout out, um, some up upcoming, um, streams as well. Talking about William Lane Craig, we have two guests coming on. I haven't created the promo for them. I just got the email confirmations the last uh, two days, but we have, uh, the majesty of reason coming on who actually has conversations with William Lane Craig and he's a critic of, uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. Nice. Uh, someone said, uh, Kalam fails in P1 logically anyway. Um, Titan said that, um, you say that, but there are a lot of people who still find the Kalam convincing. So the, the conversation we'll be having um, with Majesty Reason is why, why that is, why do they find it convincing? You know, what can we give a best faith interpretation of the Kalam? And we also have, uh, we also have James Fodder coming on, who is a university student from Melbourne. Um, he's a neuroscientist as well. So um, he, he'll be talking about um we'll be talking about a lot of the same things philosophy and things like that so both really exciting guests to come on um but uh michael it's been fantastic having a conversation with you and uh great answers to so many questions um thank you so much make sure everyone go check out his channel make sure you subscribe to deep drinks this helps us get to um thousand subscribers and uh we'll see you all guys another time michael is there anything else you want to say before we leave Oh, I really appreciate it, David. It's always an absolute pleasure to to talk to you. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about David, I've interviewed David a few times on uh, my channel. If you want to go check out those videos, highly recommend them. I think that um, to to be fair too, uh, most people don't come here for me. But <laughs> if uh, <laughs> but there is a let me just quickly go to your channel. Um, this interview we did. Uh, let me just see. Listen to you, we did here yeah. with a staggering 89 views, which obviously <laughs> people don't really care. I put a lot of work into fleshing out my positions here. And so, so I think this is a good interview to watch. Um, I think it's um, relatively interesting uh, if you want to know where I build my worldview from. Um, and uh, that's a great show. Thank you, Deep Drinks Podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate those comments. And I'll see you guys all next week, um, which we're still up in the air with the guests, but we do have um, someone. Um, 
tentatively planned. So see you guys and look forward to seeing that big announcement coming up. Yeah. See you later. Can't wait.